As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The race is on, and with Fernando Alonso and Aston Martin starring, the pressure is building on Lance Stroll after his patchy season. So how good, or bad, has he really been, and is there any chance of the team considering looking elsewhere? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to answer those questions and more are Ben Anderson and Val Arunji. Well Val, welcome back again. Once again, you're bringing your MotoGP expertise to things. I'm not sure it really relates especially to Lance Stroll, but you obviously kept a close eye on him in the junior ranks as well as his F1 progress, so you're well-versed in him. I'm trying to think of like MotoGP instances of riders in the Premier class riding for their dads, and I mean, Kenny Roberts Jr. riding for Kenny Roberts Sr., I guess, like 15 years ago or whatever, but that was, you know, that was two world champions, which Lance still has a fair way to go to end up there. Yeah, that would be a big turnaround. But of course, he is Lance Stroll, future world champion. So um, we've got every chance. Uh, and we've also got Ben Anderson. Obviously, Ben, you were covering Formula One on the ground full time when Lance had his early forays into Formula One. And you've been following him closely since. So a good grasp of the overall curve of improvement, I guess, for him. Yes, I think that curve is maybe flattened a bit. We'll get into it, I'm sure. Um, but yes, I, I, I remember Stroll's early days well yeah he was very much in that new Max Verstappen wave trying to to get into Formula One as quickly as possible a young man in a hurry um and I think that that has played a, a significant role in in his career trajectory actually trying to kind of emulate or match Max who both actually did their first ever car race together with myself in 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 the United States. Yeah, so I I'm, I'm not I think Ben was one of the Formula 1 talent rivals of both Lance and Max in the in the <laughs> Florida Winter Series, was it? At track I don't remember, Correct, but they, yeah. they both did the full schedule of that. They did, yeah. I mean, effectively it was a stroll funded, you know, winter series under the auspices of Ferrari and uh I was invited to do 
I think it was the first sounds correct race meeting at, yeah. at the legendary Sebring circuit. So I mean, it was a fantastic, uh, fantastic week for me. And um, we were driving effect, uh, Formula Abarth cars. They were Abarth, Abarth, effectively what became F4 in the in the early years of F4 in Europe. Um, so Stroll was then 15, um, just out of karting. So he was looking to to effectively do some testing in the car that some test racing in the car that he would then graduate to in, was it Italian F4 he did for his first season? Yes, yes it was. Uh, and Max was in his uh, spell of how many different cars can I get in in front of people to impress? And I remember interviewing Jos um, for an autosport feature, actually something inconsequential, but he was talking then about, um, well, we've tested Formula Renault, Formula 3, we're not sure what we're going to do. And in the end, obviously he decided to just, as Max has done throughout his career, throw him in at the deep end. He went straight into F3 and then straight into Formula 1 and uh, yeah, kind of blew up the whole junior Formula single-seater ladder and created the license point system that uh, so infuriated Colton Herter in the IndyCar fraternity last season. It was, uh, If I remember correctly, like Lance was okay in that series and obviously for a 15-year-old stepping into F- F4 machinery for the first time, there's always a bit of a concession. Max was really good. Two yeah. best drivers in that series were... Now Lamont Polman, Antonio Fuoco, and Nicholas Latifi. Yeah, Nicholas there was Latifi some, won the, a bunch of races in that. The 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 rationale, I guess, from Max and Yoss's point of view, uh, was that there were some good benchmark drivers in it. I, I guess you know the, the idea is that it was sold as a you know a winter series that would run and run, and people would you know pay to be in there. I think I think the Verstappen's did fund part fund there their seat and obviously it was a proper series they went around florida and they went to is it homestead one of the other yeah, tracks they, they went did homestead and they did too. um yeah. so it was a proper series but they also had some ringers in there and the and, and some ferrari drivers so rafa rafael marcello was, well, there, as was well. there yeah but i don't um, think he was like pushing pushing i imagine mm, he was there as sort of a benchmark so, so they they were there obviously at the behest of ferrari because they were on ferrari's books at the time uh yeah latifi was there and at the time he was competing in european formula three and i think doing okay so you had some really good references, and I think that that was an attraction for the Verstappens. It was obviously good for Stroll because it gave him something to aim at, and it was good for those guys because it kept them sharp in you know nice Florida weather rather than you know kicking it in cold weather in Europe. Um, and it was a very exciting opportunity for me too. And I would say Verstappen was standout, given that obviously he'd done some testing in single seaters, but he hadn't done anything you know, of any consequence in cars yet, obviously an outstanding karting career. He was right there, you know, even from the the practice sessions, uh, straight on the pace. He was complaining about his engine being underpowered. I think they swapped the engine. Um, he was really quick. Obviously, he was rough around the edges. And in fact, in one of the races, he drove into the back of me and uh, uh, tried to argue afterwards that he wasn't at fault. And Jos slapped him down and sided with me. So I did have a narrow victory over Max Verstappen in terms of arguing about who was at fault for a crash. But yeah, he just made a few kind of classic rookie mistakes following too closely, um, speeding in the pits, these kinds of things that cost him. He was, considering his level of experience, a standout driver, even against those, you know, very good European Formula 3 drivers. Stroll was very respectable, but he wasn't anything like at the same level. And that's to be expected maybe when he hadn't done the same kind of testing that Max had. But even after we'd done all the practice sessions and some qualifying and a few races, you know, Stroll had promise, but he wasn't a driver you looked at and went, oh my God, he's going to stand out and yeah, definitely go sure. places. For sure, for sure. So it just struck me that I, I've almost certainly written race reports 
on on a on a race or two where Ben Anderson was one of the participants. Yeah, well, the first race, uh, you know, I was slightly out of my depth, having done some single seat racing at club level in the UK. I had experience, but I didn't have you know proper junior single seater experience. Obviously, these cars didn't have much downforce, but like slicks and wings was not really my my thing. So I was learning as well, and I wasn't at the back. I was kind of lower mid, I would say, on in the dry. But the first race was wet, and and that definitely played to my strengths because suddenly the grip levels were lower, and it was more like my kind of Formula V, Formula Ford, sixteen hundred level of experience and. Stroll did beat me in that race, but I was closing him down in the rain. Uh, so I can say legitimately that like, I was quicker than Lance Stroll in the race. <laughs> Excellent credibility there. I've got to take my own slice of credit and my 10% because I think I opened the discussions to get you into that uh, into that Winter Series uh, outing. So that's my small small contribution well, you, to what's uh, a very good story. So uh, Ed was investing in a potential F1 junior team place for Ben and further on from there and he didn't. Well, I did go on to do the MRF challenge did a race at chennai the same year so this was 2014 uh so in the february went to chennai and that was a that was a mad experience and actually in the final race of that weekend i had reverse grid pole having worked my way up to eighth in the in the middle race and there was ringers there as well there were kind of f3 level drivers rupert svensson cook harry tinknell uh uh, Narain Carter Kane was there as well. He raced that weekend, so ex Formula One driver. And then you had some up and comers from like the British scene, people who are doing Formula Ford and what have you. I got reverse grid pole and I caused absolute chaos by leading the first lap. And my strategy was nail the start, get the first two corners. The first corner at Chennai is this fast right hander, and then you go into a tight right. I was like, if I can get out of that tight right left in the lead, I can win this race. Can you define nail the start, please? Well, I got I got off the line and made it into the first. Did you say you got off the line first. brilliantly, extraordinarily uh, well, supernaturally well? No, no, averagely, but enough. And uh, there was chaos behind me because obviously I did fairly. I didn't hair off and just pull away on pace. I was defending to keep my track position. And there, people went off behind me. I think Svensson Cook went off the track. I think Carter Kane had a collision with Tinknell. I didn't care, obviously, because they were behind me. Uh, and in the end, the race settled into to me leading Sam de Jonger, who I think went on to do some sports car stuff. And once I got into my rhythm, I was comfortable. And he did say to me later, I wasn't going to beat you. Uh, you were going to win the race. Uh, but I got a black flag, uh, was uh, called into the pits, just, just as a safety car period was ending. It was very strange. Uh, and they did me for a jump start. And I was called up to the, the race control and I had a look at the video and I saw nothing amiss. So I, I absolutely raged at the race control that they dud me out of a win. And uh, they zoomed right in on my my right rear tyre and said uh, that it had moved slightly during the light sequence. That was me finding the bite point of the clutch. And they declared that a jump start and uh, took took the result away from me. It's my biggest regret in racing that I didn't ignore the flag and just cross the line first to prove to everybody that I was going to win that race on the road. So jump start, that's what it comes down to. Too good a start. I've not seen any of the footage of it, so I can quite have to. It was a terrible it. start. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we've done a, an unexpected little side journey down Ben Anderson's racing career, but uh, I'm sorry to say Ben is actually, sorry. Is actually quite a handy driver. So uh, it's good that you got to cross paths with some of the stars. But let's talk a little bit more about Lance Stroll now. Ben, should we look at the facts and figures of Stroll's season first? Mm -hmm. How has he really stacked up? That seems a logical starting point. 
Yeah, okay, so let's let's do the numbers. He's eighth in the world championship. His teammate, Fernando Alonso, is third. Uh, 37 points to Stroll, 117 for Alonso after eight races. So that's an 80-point gap. Uh, 10 points fewer per race for Stroll, although he's had two DNFs. Um, one, you could say, is more his fault because he was playing pinball with the barriers in Monaco. The other was, I think, an engine failure in Jeddah, so not his fault. Um, he's the lowest scoring driver among the top four teams comfortably. He's not finished on the podium yet. Alonso's finished on the podium six times in eight races in the same car. Uh, Stroll's best finish so far this season is fourth uh, after surviving a collision on the first lap with Charles Leclerc in Melbourne. So quite lucky. Um, and that was obviously a quite m- mad race as well. Um, his average finishing gap to Alonso in the races where they both finished is 23 seconds. Um, he's only beaten him once in the Spanish Grand Prix, although Alonso was faster in the in the final stint and obviously was uh, gently suggesting on the radio that he might be let past, but decided better of it and stayed behind. Uh, the average dry, dry qualifying gap between the two uh, is 0.2 seconds, um, but that's trending worse actually since the third round of the season in Melbourne. So Stroll has been closer early on and falling away as the car's improving and Alonso's getting more comfortable. He was 1.7 seconds off Alonso in Q2 in the wet in Canada, which is the biggest gap between them so far. And he's only out-qualified Alonso once. That was also in Spain, but obviously that was the, uh, the qualifying session where Alonso uh, drifted wide at the final corner in Q1, I think it was, and damaged his floor, somehow made it to Q3 anyway. If Alonso's car had not been damaged, I imagine it would be a clean sweep. And also messed up, messed up his Q3 lap, Alonso. That yes, he did. probably yes. should have been quicker than, than Lance's. Because even Lance admitted after the fact that this, this doesn't really count as a qualifying win. No, no, he was half a second ahead, so you'd you'd imagine Alonso would have been closer with a clean lap. But it was the, it was a chance for Stroll to beat Alonso because Alonso was hampered by the damage, self inflicted. Which damage. yeah, to be fair, yeah, it was it was his error. So yeah, it was that's, his that's error. Part but, of a defeat. But that's probably the only error that you could describe to Alonso so far. And of course, Alonso is not only the benchmark in that team, but that is what Stroll is aspiring to be. You know, if he wants to win the world championship, he has to be a driver who's capable of operating at the level of an Alonso or at least near to it. And I would have to say over the, the pattern of the first eight races we've seen so far in 2023, he is nowhere near that level. Just to add another set of numbers to your excellent overview, Ben, I do my rankings at the end of every Grand Prix weekend, 1 to 20, and Stroll has had 5th, 9th, 8th, 10th, 18th, 17th, 8th, 16th. And that 5th, the one in Bahrain, was primarily in recognition of him dropping in without having testing with those yeah. injuries. The one thing we can say, I guess, in his defence is he reckoned it wasn't until Monaco that he was 100% fit again, but yeah. that hasn't heralded a complete change. But probably yeah, the, the highlight of his season was actually in Bahrain, where I thought he did a really good job dropping back in. He was obviously not able to drive completely freely. He was having to make compromises in the way he was operating things, and I think he showed some really admirable determination there. However, once into normal running, it's been a little bit different. Yeah, I have to say, Stroll has often during his first six, seven seasons in Formula One, appeared like someone who's not perhaps fully committed to the cause, not absolutely 100% driven to be there and win. Um, partly that's related to how competitive the car has been. And he's he's driven more, probably just about more bad cars than good in his time so far. And that's debatable considering the racing points were fairly handy. But obviously he doesn't have that excuse this year. You know, the car is good. And I think he deserves credit and got some extra credit for the way he battled back from that cycling accident to be not fit for the first race, but 
know, push through the pain barrier, compete, do a solid job. Uh, you know, I, I was, I'd not seen that level of commitment from him, that kind of attitude before. And I thought, oh, maybe this is it. This is the switch that's clicked. You know, now Aston are going places. They've surprised themselves with how good the car is. You know, this is, we're going to see Stroll finally, you know, late bloom into the driver that uh, his dad expects him to be. But actually, his performances have tailed off as he's got stronger, fitter, and the car's got better. You know, you mentioned Monaco, Ed. Well, he was awful in Monaco and hasn't really picked it up since. So there's this weird disconnect between Stroll suddenly not battling against the adversity and actually performing worse than when when it looked like he would really, really struggle to even deliver half-decent performance at the start of the season. Is there potentially a point to be made that Bahrain... Maybe I wouldn't say historically because the sample size I have in my head isn't so big, but that it seems to allow drivers who have a very wide range of performance to hit very close to the top of their range of performance, even if they're limited in some way. So we've seen a lot of sort of Bahrain debuts that have not really then fitted into the storyline of the year or stuff like that. I mean, Yuki Tsunoda had a great Bahrain debut, and then the rest of the rest of his rookie season was fairly negligible. Stoffel van Dorn had an excellent first uh, Formula One race in Bahrain, and the rest of his career with McLaren never lived up to any of that. So I, I wonder if it's it's probably a, a quite a bit harder and requires quite a a bit of a different skill set, maybe, and a different level of consistency and trust in your car to do well at Monaco than than in Bahrain. Yeah, I think that's probably fair, Bahrain. Well, there's sort of two aspects to it. One, it's now a well-worn circuit. You know, testing happens there. F2 goes there regularly. So pretty much everybody, whether they're a new driver in Formula 1 or an experienced driver, has done countless laps of Bahrain. They know the track really well. So it shortcuts some of the learning, even if the car's changed um, or has some new developments on it. And I think also the teams talk about how it's a particular track. It's not necessarily representative of of the proper demands of Formula One or or where your car is at. You know, it's mainly slow slow corners, straight line braking. It's a power circuit, a braking circuit, and a traction circuit. There's not really any sequences where you're really tested. You know, turn four is maybe a little bit difficult if you've got the kind of S's, and then obviously that difficult down downhill left breaking into turn 10 that's probably the most challenging bit where Alonso pulled his unlikely move on Lewis Hamilton but the fast bits are kind of easy fast you know easy flat especially in Formula 1 cars now so there isn't really that full physical test that you would get somewhere like Barcelona or even the the pure technical challenge that you might get somewhere like Spa where it's you know difficult to trade off the right downforce level for example. And it's very contained by the tyre characteristics and trying to sit within the, uh, the the thermal deg and that kind of thing. Yeah. It's also worth noting that in Bahrain, Stroll did make contact with Alonso on the first lap. Now, obviously, that, yeah. they got away with it. Oh, yes. Who hit me? Who hit me? <laughs> it's interesting because Stroll did get a reputation for really good first laps. And part of that was entirely merited because he did make up positions. Part of that was also down to the fact he'd often underperforming qualifying, which makes it easier. But one of the things I do know from speaking privately to some of his rivals, he was seen as a first lap driver who had a bit of a habit of chucking his car perhaps where it shouldn't be and relying on others getting out of the way, that kind of thing. Sometimes not not thinking ahead and actually that Bahrain incident. He doesn't do it as much now, but he was battling with another car and didn't quite think three-dimensionally in terms of there being other cars around. So I don't think that's a major problem now, but it's just... It's a common thing amongst junior drivers, isn't it? 
you know, in the sort of post-Daniel Ricciardo era. Um, and Verstappen was like this to a degree, very uncompromising, only focused on the next corner. I'm coming down the inside or outside, come what may, you have to jump out of my way. But I think it's disappointing to see Stroll maybe not evolving away from that. Well, you say Verstappen was that. He just isn't having to show he isn't that right now. So, I mean, <laughs> Yes, maybe, yeah. yeah. I, I, maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but certainly he's calmed down. I think, in fairness, Verstappen has evolved in that regard. He's, he's definitely changed. Yes, he's, let's say, generously uncompromising in battle. He doesn't like the word. He is aggressive in battle, but you can choose to set your, your level of attack. But he's an interesting stroll because there's often this sort of defence of him, oh, he's only young, he's 25 in October, but he's in his seventh season. He started 130 Grand Prix. So that puts him, he's not far off being in the top 50 World Championship race starters. So this is a guy in the middle of his career now. He's not some inexperienced rookie. He's got a lot of experience and he's driven, as you say, Ben, he's had some bad cars in his career, but he's had a wide range of machinery. And now he's in a car that can be pretty much pitching for the podium week in, week out. And that's why we're discussing this now, because this is a wider question that we're seeing F1 fans asking. It's like, well, Alonso's doing that. Is Stroll really uh, able to do it? Which is is why it's a, a legitimate question to ask. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, Val, we've talked about where Stroll is right now. And there are those, as I alluded to, who mention his age and his inexperience. So, could there be more to come? And what do you think his overall potential is? I don't think there's more to come. I think we know we know what Lance Stroll is in terms of Formula One, which is you know, always not something that you want to say with complete confidence. But I mean, you've brought up the fact that he's knocking on the door of the top 50 of most race starts in Formula One. I think he's 52nd right now. Uh, he's, you know, he's done more races than guys like Damon Hill and Jack Brabham. In Grand Prix, I mean, obviously, different era, different number of Grand Prix per season, but it's still, you know, it's not nothing. He's only got 19 fewer than Kevin Magnussen, who I think we all widely recognize as a Formula One veteran-ish at this point. He's done more races than Alex Albon and Yuki Tsunoda combined. He's he's, he's done nearly double the number of races of Alex Albon. Well, yeah, done, yeah, yeah. And yeah. he's done more than Ocon, Gasly, yeah. Leclerc, Norris, Russell. So this is an experienced driver we're talking about now in the context of the current grid. He deserves to be, you know, he, he was afforded a certain margin for how young he debuted and how raw he was to begin things in a Williams that actually does not fall under his bad cars. So I think that Williams, you know, he wasn't very fast in it, but he was very raw, extremely raw. It was a good Williams, decent Williams. Um, so, yeah, at that point, obviously, that sort of going straight from Formula 3 to Formula 1, you do build in a bit more of a learning curve. But after seven seasons, I don't think you observe it as a learning curve anymore because it's it's also just been more or less the same environment. So there's no... He's been, he's been on pole position and on the podium more yes. than once. So. Yes, and which, you know, it it is very important to note. It is maybe more than you would have expected even despite the fact that his junior career was quite good. You know, not every good junior driver who gets into Formula 1 gets to stand on the podium and be on pole. And yeah, it it takes opportunities and it helps with those opportunities when you have the budget to make sure that no matter what, you stay on the grid. 
but it's you know it's still it's still a certain marker of class but i think why i don't believe there's this huge ceiling to lance stroll beyond what we're seeing right now besides the 130 grand prix starts that we've already had is just i think this is basically the driver we saw before f1 and what we would have sort of expected as maybe the likeliest outcome he's he's pretty fast he had some pretty good junior results but they were all in a very i think what you would describe as controlled environments so he won italian f4 he won european f3 both of those with the same team prema a team that was reported at the time that Lawrence stroll invested shares in i believe um he, whether he did or didn't you know it's still it's the best team it's a it's a very very good junior single seater operation he had continuity with it before he was brought into formula one with of course extensive private formula one testing as far as we know he just this is i think this is the driver he is he is a slightly shaky qualifier but a pretty assured racer who can hold his own in formula one's midfield but does not have that extra little bit when he's faced with somebody like fernando alonso like a, a true great who even I, I don't think he's like at the very peak of his powers but it's still fernando alonso he's somewhere there that's already going to be unreachable for 95 percent. i think the problem with stroll is he's not close enough you know even if the, the level of an alonso is unreachable for nearly everybody there are many who've been closer to alonso than stroll is and it's worrying to see that stroll finally has the right level of car. Okay, it's not the it's not a Red Bull, but he'd probably be doing even worse in a Red Bull if you look at where Sergio Perez is compared to Max Verstappen. But he's nowhere near Alonso in the same car. If Alonso wasn't there and there was a, a younger driver paired alongside Stroll, say like Sergei Sorokin was at Williams in Stroll's second season, I think we wouldn't be seeing the Aston Martin as the second best car in Formula One. We'd be seeing them as fourth best team you know, overachieving against Alpine who've had a difficult start because they've imploded a bit rather than, oh, this is a team that could actually be the one that's challenging Red Bull. And that that shows the difference the driver can make. Um, you know, Alonso's obviously, you know, defying age and performing at probably the peak of his powers or very close. Stroll is, has got so much to do to get anywhere near that. And he just seems to me over the pattern of his career to be a kind of paint by numbers driver. He's had all these advantages of being in the best teams, having the extra testing, having sometimes drivers employed to provide a reference for him. I think Felix Rosenquist had that job when he was in F3, you know, near enough anyway, a guy that was certainly didn't need to be sticking around at F3 level and yet was there to kind of provide a, a, a benchmark for uh, Brandon Maizano in Formula Four, Italian F4, if I'm and not mistaken. So I think Lance is piecing things together from having these great opportunities, but it isn't necessarily always coming naturally. That's not to say there isn't a naturally good driver in there. You know, he's had some, he's had a pole position. You don't achieve that by accident. You know, he had a stunning wet qualifying performance for Williams at Monza, I think, in his rookie year, where he was basically third quickest behind the Mercedes drivers. That was truly impressive. But these are flash in the pan moments. Uh, you know, Pastor Maldonado, who was a mockery of a Formula One driver to most fans, was capable of these odd moments of absolute brilliance, but also moments of complete ineptitude and never really managed to kind of even out into this consistent performer that could start chipping away and edging towards the better end of the grid. 
And I see Stroll not as extreme as Maldonado necessarily, but he's just not able to develop that consistency to evolve in a way where you think, okay, the baseline of Lance's performance is now consistently edging upwards. There's just the odd amazing result and then generally a slight tendency to underperformance. And I think if you look at the grid over overall now, and you would try to try to remove the nepotistic element of his dad owning Aston Martin, which is now evolving into a top team. Certainly Lance, at his current level of performance, would not qualify for that seat alongside Fernando Alonso. But I wouldn't say he's not deserving of a seat in Formula One. You know, if he was in Logan Sargent's position at Williams, if he was in the second seat at Alpha Tauri, I think he'd be doing a very good job. He'd probably be outperforming the current incumbents. But also, you would expect that because he's in his seventh season. He's not a rookie. I think the thing with Stroll that you do see is he almost feels like a driver who has reached the limit of the refinement in his game, shall we say, in that probably his best moments have been in the wet. When you can improvise a bit more, you know, you're, you're relying on on the feel and that kind of thing, whereas that absolutely nailing a lap on fresh tyres in ideal track conditions, that's really difficult to get that last few tenths. And also, we're benchmarking him against Alonso in qualifying. Well, Alonso's strongest suit ultimately isn't qualifying. He's very good in yeah, qualifying, but it's that relentless racing. And I always look at Stroll and you think, yeah, if you're in a car that can finish third, you're going to finish sixth. If you're in a car that can finish sixth, you're going to finish ninth or tenth. And he doesn't force the issue almost in races. Races happen around him, if you see what I mean. So sometimes, like, the Canadian Grand Prix was a perfectly good race drive. He started 16th, I think, came through to ninth, got Bottas on the line, so a good little cameo at the end. A well-executed race, but he'd already messed up before. And again, not always forcing the issue. Maybe that one instance was with the battle with Bottas, but he was in a much quicker car. And there's also that thing of just delivering when you've got the opportunity. Now, there's a forgotten race that Lance Stroll should have won. And it wasn't the Turkish 13. Grand Prix when he oh. started on pole. It was the Italian Grand Prix that Pierre Gasly won. Because who started ahead of Gasly on the restart grid? Obviously, Hamilton started on pole, but he had to serve the penalty. But Stroll started ahead of Gasly and he had a really bad... They didn't have a great start and then lost it uh, way a little bit, had a little off on that first lap. So that was an opportunity to win. You could even argue the Sakir Grand Prix that Perez won. Obviously, they effectively diverged on strategy because Perez, because he had the contact on the first lap, was pushed onto a sort of de facto one-stopper. But he came through and passed Stroll in that race. Stroll finished third, he won it. Ocon was second. So there have been opportunities. And I just think that's that's just Stroll. He's perfectly fine and he'll sort of rumble along and pick up solid results. You know, if the Aston Martin stays competitive, I'm sure he'll pop up on the podium at some point this season. But it's just not dependable. And that means every weekend or nine weekends out of 10, he's going to leave points on the table. I think a, like, a lot of that is, you know, it's indicative, but also like a lot of that is incidental. I think the main point that you brought up is just not he's not a level of qualifier he needs to be to be a top Formula One driver, which to me is the most important. Maybe I'm a little qualifying biased in how I look at things. Well, even because- even a solid number two. You know, like the, yes. the, the Stroll situation when you've got, you know, a, a great driver in Fernando Alonso occupying the main seat, even if the other guy's a little bit off that level, Stroll isn't bringing the kind of le- level of technical understanding or ability to push the development of the car forward. You know, he's the guy learning off Alonso. So he's a drag on that team overall. There, there aren't, I don't see qualities there in Stroll beyond the pure speed or the you know, the ceiling on his racecraft that justify that seat. You know, he's not he's not like Mark Webber was at giving aerodynamic feedback to 
to Red Bull compared to Sebastian Vettel. There's no kind of balance of skill sets that justify the whole. It's just Alonso being brilliant in a car that is finally matching his ability in this kind of post-Ferrari era of his career. And Stroll just isn't accessing that level of performance anywhere near enough of the time, or even at all, when you look at the first eight races of this season. You mentioned Maldonado. Uh, I would. I don't know if this is an uncharitable thing to say. I would say the performance level is Maldonado with the tails trimmed off, if that makes any sense. I think... Yeah, he's more in the middle. It's more yeah, condensed yeah, yeah, exactly, into the less exactly. outstanding, yeah. Some, uh, Pastor Maldonado, the calamities are well documented, but he was also capable of, I think, lap times that I think Lance Stroll and Equal Machinery probably couldn't quite sniff and, just, and did not, and did yeah. genuinely win a grand prix yeah, you know, on, yeah on merit on that day which you know lance's best results those three podiums have all come in slightly weird circumstantial races where actually he should have got a better result maybe um rather than the result he did and so i think you're probably right to say that but yeah, this, this isn't some like dunk or anything this is just me betraying myself as a pastor maldonado true believer again for no particularly <laughs> good reason well, Pastor Maldonado was just very, very quick, didn't really know how he was doing it. So he was an extreme case. But yeah, when everything came together, he could be genuinely good. And it wasn't just Spain, there were some other very good performances. But he's also just as likely to steer off the circuit while fiddling with his steering wheel or crashing the pit entry. You know, you just don't know what you're going to get from him. And the average was not great. Now, as most of you will know, the British Grand Prix is coming up very shortly, and you could win a dream weekend there, thanks to MoneyGram. They are offering an incredible weekend experience for two people at the WTF1 Clubhouse at Silverstone. You'll enjoy weekend access to the WTF1 Clubhouse campground, including accommodation in a two-person bell tent, food and drinks for four days, dinner in Whittlebury Hall Hotel on one night, hotel and pool wristband access, and buggy transfers to and from the clubhouse to the circuit entrance. All you have to do to enter is download the MoneyGram app via the link in the podcast description and enter the code Win big UK. That's W I N B I G U K, all one word, when you send money. The closing date for entries is June 29th, and the winner will be drawn at random. Terms and conditions can be found at WTF1.com forward slash moneygram dash terms dash and dash conditions. That's WTF1.com forward slash moneygram dash terms dash and dash conditions. Now, back to the show and a point I was about to make about Lance Stroll, which is the peaks aren't stunningly good. There's occasional ones. They're certainly not frequent enough. The troughs, you know, he's not incompetent or anything, so it's not terrible, but just it averages out, and and he's kind of rumbling around. He's rumbling around being, I don't know, the 15th best driver in Formula 1 or something like that, which is okay if you're in the 7th best team, maybe, but not so good when you're in the team that's in there battling for second. I think another reason probably maybe we're more down than some people is we enjoy stories of, you know, progression or regression, like big changes of performance, development, something changes, something that's, you know, sort of unpredictable from one season to a season. I don't personally don't believe that Lance Stroll performance wise has changed much in the last four or five years or basically almost ever since he joined, you know, Racing Point Force India. I know it's it's very tempting, for instance, to to feel right now that he's doing worse this season than last season because he's further away from Fernando Alonso than from Sebastian Vettel. But I think Aston Martin era Sebastian Vettel was worse than Aston Martin era Fernando Alonso. I I believe that pretty strongly. I 
I think Aston Martin era Sebastian Vettel was at best a sideways move from Racing Point era Sergio Perez. And Fernando Alonso is better than any of those. So now it looks more dire. But to me, that doesn't translate into, oh, something's changing with Lance Stroll. It's it's just, oh, well, it, you know, that's Lance Stroll being compared to different benchmarks while being Lance Stroll. It's very, very difficult to be Fernando Alonso's teammate. You know, there are drivers with better pedigree, even world champions who've been absolutely destroyed by Alonso in the same car. So it's no shame if you're Lance Stroll to not be at Alonso's level, but you've got to be closer. And the one element that I feel might be important, but it's impossible to know without being in his head, is when he came into Formula One, and obviously, you know, his his father's money has been very important and his father's passion as well has been very important in driving his career forward. And you mentioned, you know, some of the the junior teams that they were heavily involved in on the way up. And obviously they tried to become more heavily involved in Williams when he joined Formula One and it didn't quite go the way it did with, you know, Racing Point. But in that scenario, the first two seasons, yes, the first year's car was better and probably Lance suffered in his second year from a kind of false dawn um, and, and a regression at the team. But also he was fundamentally at Williams an employee. Okay, there was a special relationship because of his, you know, dad pumping in money and you know trying to take over the team, but it didn't quite escalate to the same degree. Since he's been at Racing Point, he's in this comfortable situation where he's not really strictly an employee of the team. He's he's there doing what kids do with their dads when they start out going karting by themselves. You know, it just happens to be a multi-million pound Formula One operation. So he's not working in the same circumstances or under the same pressures as other drivers. And that's not to say that everyone needs to be under pressure all the time, but there needs to be a sort of professional framework around what you're doing. And in elite sport, there has to be pressure to perform, positive pressure. It's how you motivate yourself to to progress and improve. And I'm not saying that Lance is lazy, but he doesn't have the same reasons to get out of bed in the morning as every other driver who's got to beat their teammate in order to save their career. And that I don't think that can be ignored, even though it's an intangible. And it's not just about whether drivers have got lots of money behind them. Let's say Lando Norris had great resources behind him and he took every opportunity he was given. He learned a lot and he's a really, really first-rate Formula One driver. No yeah. question. He's a, he's a guy who will reel off race wins once he's in a car good enough to do it. So but no not... one sees his dad. No one sees his dad. Well, exactly, yeah. But, but <laughs> even so, if Lance Stroll was performing like Lando Norris, then we wouldn't really be having this discussion. It's like, no, well, we yeah, no. he's the owner's son, but it doesn't matter or, because the or owner's son is mega. cars... Well, I think you'd see a very, very different pattern of performance. Let's put it that way. I think that'd be good news for Oscar Piastri, certainly, and it would give Alonso a, a harder time. But so it's it's not fundamentally like sometimes people just sort of say, "Oh, we're just being jealous of people having backing." But you know, th- there's drivers in motorsport who have all different levels of support. And actually, if you look through the F1 grid, there's all manner of levels of, of family money and how much wealth could be put in and there's support that's earned or not earned, however you want to look at it, you've got pretty much everything. Okay, you don't make it to F1. You don't ever get started in karting if you don't have at least a little bit early on. But there's a big range. You know, Esteban Ocon wasn't the son of a billionaire. (laughs) Let's put it that way, Lewis Hamilton. You know, So it's not a fundamental problem of having a driver in Stroll's situation. But I think where this problem arises is where you've got the situation of the team ownership and almost his position being inviolable. And I think that may be 
means it does, as you say, Ben, change the the pressure. And of course, you've also got the situation where the team, let's face it, does bend over backwards to talk Lance Stroll up. Fernando Alonso does it. He knows where his bread's buttered. The, all this stuff about Lance Stroll, future world champion. Well, do you know what? If Lance Stroll got well, it's the not cha- true, is it? The working dynamic is is false. It's like it's like he's some kind of emperor that people feel they can't say ill about because if they make the wrong move, then they could be for the chop. And I'm not I'm not I'm not saying that would happen, but that you you that that mindset would be understandable. And it, you he's he's not going to be treated the same way as any other driver in any other team. And that has to affect the way not only he works, but the people around him. But maybe he meant future world endurance champion. We don't that know. I could maybe see. Maybe he just left out the word. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting because you have got a whole team that is bending over backwards to talk up the positives of Lance Stroll. And actually, it is interesting because when you ask teams about drivers and they're being frank about them, they can be very interesting. They can say, well, actually, this guy is very good at this, this and this. Not so good on this, but they're working away at it. This is an area where they haven't really... and But you never get that with Stroll. You just get absolute accentuation of the positive and that's fine because i understand why everyone's got to do that and as we've said we always try to frame stroll not as an incompetent grand prix driver because he isn't an incompetent grand prix driver he's perfectly serviceable perfectly safe perfectly reasonable but he's not a a superstar so that's i guess the big problem we have there and that does i think offer a little window into the kind of environment going on within the team and you'd be worried about people within the team almost walking on eggshells, shall we say, because of the uh, the circumstances there. Yeah, he's not keeping, at the moment, I think, anyone off the grid who should be on the grid. As I said earlier, there are a couple of seats that he would, I think, legitimately and objectively do a better job than the incumbent driver for whatever reason. It's just that we've entered in 2023 a situation where he is below the level of the car he is driving, I think, and it's quite to quite an extreme degree. And I think Aston Martin can get away with it this year because, well, obviously they can get away with it because his dad's the owner, but independent of that, they're overachieving, they're surprising themselves. They're doing much better than they thought they would. If anything, Stroll's underperformance might help them in the aerodynamic testing restrictions table. So if you want to find one justification for him, it's in there. They can get some more wind tunnel time by having an underperforming second car. But in a tighter championship battle, you know, Mercedes are underperforming, but they seem to be turning things around. Ferrari are massively underperforming. Alpine, I think they have a quick car, but they have executed the first eight races terribly on balance. So there's not really the pressure from behind that there probably should have been. So he can hide a bit, but in a more normal season where Mercedes are firing on all cylinders, where Ferrari aren't a complete basket case and where Alpine have actually got things together like they had last year, Stroll will be massively found out and so will Aston. And that can be the difference between instead of one place, you know, they they should be second in the in the constructors' championship and they're not because of Stroll in in an alternate alternate universe where the other teams are not underperforming, they're going to be easily fourth or fifth rather than fighting for second. And at that at that point, regardless of the family dynamic, the team ownership and management has to look at the second driver and think. We need to make a change. Any other Formula One team would be doing that in the current situation. See, from a from a sporting point of view, that's axiomatic. Basically, there's there's no argument there. There's a, it's it's obvious. Oh, let's go home everyone. then. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you know, I just sometimes I just try to look at it as if I was Lawrence Stroll, and I mean I have enough money not to be recording this. But no, <laughs> um, are you recording from your helicopter or your private jet? It's just you know. Like, 
and you're you're Lawrence Troll, and you go, you know, this is my son. I I love my son. I pay a lot to make this team first rate. I pay a lot for the first driver. Okay, we're we're potentially sacrificing world constructors' positions here because my son is not a top ten Formula One driver, and everybody else in these other cars is. I'll cover the shortfall. Whatever. For individual glories, we have the World Drivers Championships. I'm gonna I'm gonna pay for the benchmark driver. He's gonna deliver me results. I think to a certain point that does kind of work. It's extremely unsatisfying from a sporting point of view, but I I understand it on a very boring human level. Well, I think that's certainly a very valid topic, which we'll get into in the final parts of the podcast in a moment. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, Val, to come back to the topic you were just talking about, we've kind of established Lance Stroll's performance level isn't up to scratch for a top F1 team. You've talked about the Lawrence Stroll perspective. Do you think there's any chance of that changing? Not necessarily immediately, but will there come a point where Lawrence Stroll has to look at it? The numbers will be there. You'll be finishing lower in the championship than you should do. It will be an unanswerable case in terms of the overall level. Do you think he'll ever look at that and change? Or do you think, as you alluded to, he's just going to be, no, this is about Lance. We will stick with him through thick and thin. So I think there's two, I mean, there's obviously two potential routes for Lance Stroll ever leaving this team. Uh, well, three, but you know, one and then one that's split into two. The first one is Lance Stroll going to Lawrence or to Aston Martin or to Aston Martin and Lawrence and saying, look, I'm not digging this anymore. This is, you know, it's too much commitment. It's too much. I can't quite reach the level I want to be at. I'm ready to do some other stuff. I mean, that at, at certain parts of his career, that seemed possible. But I think he sort of dispelled that view by showing repeatedly that maybe he doesn't enjoy some parts of Formula One media commitments maybe a little bit but he he certainly enjoys the racing he clearly loves racing formula one cars a lot and is pretty decent at it um so i i'm not sure that's happening anytime soon the second one would be the team deciding to drop lance stroll which would come either as a decision lauren stroll is involved in as the current co-owner or in some hypothetical future situation where the team is no longer co-owned by lauren stroll uh the second one 
whatever i think that's pretty much clear if that happens that's a completely different consideration of a completely different formula one the first one i i just i don't really see for the reasons i mentioned before like he clearly loves his son he's got enough money to cover whatever constructors championship shortfall it depends on what sort of external pressure he may be under or whatever and if at some point it's vital to do to keep the business ticking over and to keep, I don't know, shareholders from growing restless or whatever, then maybe. But I, as long as, you know, the cars produced are being good and the top driver is doing top driver things, I don't see the big pressure, even if Aston does finish fourth instead of second. I think the key aspect is whether Lawrence Stroll's desire, and it is a firm desire and commitment to turn Aston Martin into a world championship winning Formula One team, that's what he wants to do. Yeah, he's coming at a good time. He bought Force India, you know, at the at the bottom of the barrel bargain basement, you know, taking them out of administration and what have you, and then has ridden the Liberty Media Field boom of franchising. You know, it's smart business. So he's in a he's in an enviable enviable position of having a team that is probably worth significantly more than he's pumped in to not only acquire it but also progress it but at some point his own desire to to win with that team will have to trump his desire to prop up his son's career because I don't I don't see how the two marry together I can't see Lance Stroll becoming a world championship winning Formula One driver except in a very 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 rare and unusual circumstance so there's that aspect but also as the team evolves, when we as we get towards 2026 and there's the Honda tie-up, you know, Honda's already said, well, okay, Aston Martin will make the driver decisions, but there will be inevitable pressure from them to install a Japanese driver. There's already been mention of Yuki Tsunoda, who is performing at a level that I think if you stuck him in that car, he would probably do a bit better than Stroll, certainly no worse. Um, and I think has more capacity to improve. But there are also other drivers who could come on the market that would be a a definite upgrade. Lando Norris could be available by then. Alex Albon's doing a great job at Williams and could be ready for another crack at a top team uh, by the time that the new regulations come into force. You mentioned Oscar Piastri having a very, very good rookie season, getting much closer to Norris than Daniel Ricciardo could in the same car. So there there are going to be drivers available who are a definite upgrade. And at, at that point, once Aston Martin's come out of this kind of honeymoon period of oh actually yeah we we've got this team together we've got the right infrastructure there aren't bigger problems to solve like the new factory like the wind tunnel like having a star lead driver like having the right engine supplier like having the gearbox situation resolved the driver will inevitably become an elephant in the room that you can't ignore and Stroll's got time still to progress but I think based on everything we've seen over the first six and a bit seasons I don't think he's going to get in 2025, 2026, to the level where he isn't the biggest problem that Aston Martin has in order to take that final step. And it's going to be, it's going to come down to, as Val said, either Lawrence Stroll not owning the team anymore or being mo- moved aside somehow so he doesn't have the, de- the the deciding say, or he's going to have to weigh up, you know, supporting his son versus the team's ambitions and, and make the hardest decisions he's ever had to make in regard to Lance. Am, am I being needlessly reductive maybe because i know it's more complicated than that and you want two drivers to maximize development and you know one driver pushing another etc etc ultimately you need one driver to win wdc don't you 
and it doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be your son. And right now, the sort of the WDC driver at Aston Martin is right now Fernando Alonso. A few years down the line, if it comes to that, you know, you mentioned Norris, who could be a WDC driver. I think a lot of people are getting very excited about the idea of Charles Leclerc being fed up with Ferrari and heading to Aston Martin, in which case he would become their WDC driver. Can you win a world championship for Aston Martin while having Leclerc, Norris in one car and your son in the other? I maybe think, yeah, maybe if they hired Adrian Newey on well, top, yeah. no, on top of it, Dan Fallows and suddenly they, reversed the performance advantage that Red Bull had. You know, no, that's, I mean, that's possible. You know, Sergio Perez is underperforming in the second Red Bull and Red Bull are getting away with it. But again, it's it's a unique set of circumstances over the last season and a bit where Ferrari massively went off the boil after starting with the fastest car and Mercedes have been nowhere and we're we're still living through that. So... Perez would be under a lot more pressure if Mercedes and Ferrari were performing anywhere near to their hundred percent. But and Max Aston Martin, would still be champion. Yes, but then the construct, but the constructors' championship would be yeah, you know, no, be yeah. a loss. But hang on, you also there is a drivers' championship angle as well because if you're doing battle in a close battle with another team that's similarly paced, if on a good day you win and Lance is fourth or whatever, on your less good days you might finish behind two drivers from another team. Yes. So, the, so the, there isn't, the, the driver's championship can't be taken entirely in isolation. Yes, you're right. If there's a, if there's a proper advantage, that's a, difficult, that's a different thing if it's a Red Bull-type scenario. But in a close fight, that does make quite a big difference, especially when you're dealing with teams like Mercedes have got a very strong lineup, Ferrari have got a very strong lineup, and I think Red Bull have a, obviously a stronger lineup overall because Perez, while he's having his struggles, he still does produce some strong weekends. Ed, I just, I love my son so much that it doesn't, like, I don't look at those scenarios. They don't really come into my mind. The only scenario I look at is, what, Michael Schumacher's first Benetton title or whatever, when his teammates combined for minus 30 points. Like, who cares? Whatever. Those teammates can be my son. You know, I'm being obviously facetious and reductive, but I think you can talk yourself into it. Ultimately, it's it's down to him, isn't it? It's his world. And the, it's just the one thing that, that you think is pretty much Laurent Stroll has done everything right with this. You know, he may come over as a bit strange and bombastic with his all when I'm passionate about something I win and all that. But you can't fault the investment, what he's put together, the partners he's got in, the way they've approached it, the getting the wind tunnel, a new factory, this kind of thing. They really have gone for it. But this is just that one thing. So is there a point where there is a where there is that that sort of clash between your wider objectives and your desire for your son to do well. I, I don't know. It's it's very hard to say. And he, he's perfectly within his rights to just say, no, this is what we keep doing. But there are potential pitfalls there because it can disadvantage your team. It can disadvantage you commercially. Because if you're the world champion team, that's better. And there is there are scenarios where he can certainly cost you a constructor's championship and in a slightly narrower band of performance profiles, he could cost you a driver's title. So complicated. And I think he, if he's not there already, he soon will be Aston Martin's biggest weakness as a Formula One team, as a top Formula One team. So then it it comes down to a, a clear choice between can can we make the rest of the operation perform at such a high level that, as Val said, it doesn't matter. You know, we can he can drag us down, but it won't won't make the ultimate difference or will because you don't control the other things around you will the other teams who are underperforming get to the point where actually 
they will be beating Aston Martin if it isn't for that second driver and they have to upgrade. Because, you know, most most teams will look at the driver lineup, and every so often you get these situations where there's a big imbalance and then they make a change and some try to go for a clear number one and a supporting act for various reasons, sometimes financial, sometimes political, sometimes to do with the chemistry. But most often you're looking for the two very best drivers you can get and there are big teams in play and underperforming teams like McLaren who've got really good, well-balanced driver pairings. They're just waiting for the other stuff to come into play and hoping they can hang on to those drivers long enough that... Uh, it all comes together at the right time. Aston Martin has has a weakness in its driver lineup, and it's as I said before, it's getting away with it now. I don't see that they can get away with that forever because the other teams are too good. I don't see Aston Martin, even with all the, as Ed said, sensible, clever, proper investment and infrastructure development that they've done, suddenly becoming a team that has half a second to a second's advantage over the rest of the field. I just don't see it happening now, or even once the regs change in twenty six. So inevitably the, the driver lineup and the balance of it will become uh, a weakness that they have to attack if they're going to make the final step. It, it, would, it would be a shame not to utilize the level of your car in the, in the sense of being able to poach great drivers from teams with worse cars. I mean, that's a, a big plus to have. That's also something you want to do. Like you, You'd like to maybe weaken Ferrari by taking off Leclerc or if McLaren becomes a factor, weaken McLaren or Audi, if Lando Norris is on Audi's radar, instead pluck him away from that and put him into a proven proven operation and therefore not only strengthen yourself but weaken your rival. All of that, you have much less room to maneuver with that, obviously, if there's just one seat available and the other is just Lance Stroll's you know, lifetime Supreme Court appointment. Um, but I just... I, maybe my motorsport knowledge isn't good enough on this. I, I really struggle to think of a scenario where a racing father fires their son for good. I just, you know, just the, the most recent one I can think of, you know, when Marco Andretti was stepping away from the Andretti Autosport team owned by his, by his father, Michael, Marco Andretti was in a slump already, sort of his form had already more or less gone off an IndyCar from what it used to be, but it was still, it was his decision. Wasn't, wasn't as far as everything publicly that was said, it wasn't Michael Andretti pushing Marco to step away. It certainly wasn't unilateral. It was at the very least joint and potentially driven by Marco himself. I think we're probably heading for a similar sort of scenario here, unless Lance Stroll improves significantly. Yeah, I'd agree. I think it would come down to possibly the phase of life that Lance is in, you know, he's only 24 at the moment. He might get to a point of maturity where he just says, I want to do different things, or he can have the conversation with Lawrence. And it's a bit more of a peer to peer conversation rather than a father son conversation. But I think at the moment it's more likely to be, as you alluded to earlier, Val, um, a question of Lance deciding he's done with it, that he wants to do something different. I remember uh, the Grubmuller family, there was Walter Grubmuller Jr. and Sr. And Walter did a similar thing to what Stroll did in the junior categories. He bought what was then the high-tech Formula 3 team and poured money into trying to beat Carlin, who were then the, the benchmark Formula 3 team, and propel his son further up the racing ladder. But his son, Walter Jr., was not really that interested in racing. He raced to a high level, did well in British Formula 3, and then went on to do Formula Renault 3.5, but he was he was reluctant. I remember interviewing him. I remember speaking to him at an airport once, and he he was into chess, 
and you were waiting really for the inevitable moment where he he grew I don't want to say grow the spine because that's harsh but got to the point in his own development and maturity where he could say to his dad I don't want to do this anymore dad it was very much Walter Senior living his his life vicariously through his son he was the passionate one and there is a similar dynamic I think with the strolls like this is Lawrence's dream and Lawrence's passion being lived out and Lance is kind of along for the ride and I think we got close to the implosion when he was at Williams that second season when the car just didn't match up anything like his to his rookie season and he took a regression in the in the car he was driving you know that that messed with Lance and I I think he was ready to throw the towel in and didn't because he was too young maybe out of deference to his father because he was convinced otherwise by his his dad's ambitions and the plan he was laying out to go somewhere else and take over Force India, whatever. And but I still feel like Lance isn't all the way in with Formula One. Like it, it teeters. I don't see that kind of unerring, this is gonna be my life commitment to it. And you know, maybe 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 he'll get there, maybe I'm wrong. Um but I think at the moment, unless he just turns around and goes, you know what, I've had enough of this, I'm gonna do something else, that would that would take the decision out of Lawrence's and Aston Martin's hands until they get to the point, as you mentioned, Val, where with maybe with the Andretti example, that they're just old enough that it doesn't matter anymore. It's not a father-son relationship in the same way. There's also the possibility that them countenancing or Lawrence Stroll countenancing not having Lance in the team might be the scenario that gives Lance that little push to making it absolutely everything to think, do you know what? I've come this far. I really want to do this. I can see a pathway to getting into a world championship winning car and I want to pick off all those little 1% improvements because as you say with the Gribmuller comparison Lance Stroll's a better driver than Walter Gribmuller was definitely and you've got to be at a certain level to have done what he's done so there's raw material there that can still be refined I still think it would be a big ask for him to take that step but maybe just serious consideration to that possibility or saying to him right okay Lance we're going to stick with you for another another we'll stick with you to the end of 25 and then we'll see if you haven't done it by a certain point that's going to be all over and then see how he responds to it whether he thinks oh actually I can see an end to this if I don't prove myself and take that step maybe that's what will happen but it might also be that actually you know I'm enjoying this but not enough for it to be absolutely everything because this is this is elite sport this is meant to be really tough you've not only got to be brilliant in terms of the raw material of the attributes you've got but you've got to be absolutely no stone unturned in working to refine them. That's what you've got to be to be the best in in this kind of level. And so, you know, we may be doing Lance Stroll a disservice and he's thinking about it 24-7 and he's overdoing it. I don't get that impression, but you never know. But I almost feel that's maybe the trigger he needs to know that he's not just got an endless future almost doing F1 as a club driver almost in that I'm enjoying it, I'm quite good, that's fine. That's enough for me. He needs to show that he wants to be he needs to be the absolute best he can possibly be and not just be a good grand prix driver but a brilliant one from a from a wider f1 standpoint it's also just not great that you know we either know where what year every contract runs through or are at the very least very very interested to find out and you'll see all those you know pages of contract expiry dates estimated or public or whatever and then you always get to launch troll and it's just a question mark shrug who cares whatever doesn't matter, doesn't, you know, that's not the consideration there, which is not great for elite sport. That's that's not how it should be 
you know, as, as a view. And it, it's a wider issue where this is not as much sympathy as I have for the situation and for, you know, Lawrence obviously being so invested and so keen on his son and his son's career. It's also, you know, ideally we would not have this kind of thing in Formula One, I guess. I, I don't think it's a particularly controversial thing to say. Yeah, and ultimately, this conversation wouldn't be happening if Lance Stroll was delivering at Fernando Alonso's level. That's a big ask, but elite sport is a big ask. So it always comes down to whenever there's drivers who people sort of put out excuses for, ultimately, if you deliver, these questions don't get asked. You get the opportunities generally in that if you're a Max Verstappen level driver, generally the chances will come. It tends to be if you're just that fraction lower, you're a bit more at the the mercy of circumstances and, and that kind of thing. So what I want to see is, is Stroll showing he's absolutely determined every time he goes out there to prove himself 100%. And maybe that could unlock something. I'm, I'm not convinced it will, but that's why I would. I think it would be great if Lawrence, I don't think he will, but it'd be great if Lawrence Stroll was to take that line and say, right, okay, come on. I've done all this. You meet me halfway now. That's what needs to happen. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the way Stroll has performed so far, he isn't meriting this, or no one merits an in-perpetuity contract, as Val outlined, but he's not even someone who merits a, a long-term Leclerc-Verstappen-style deal, or even you know, the kind of one- to two-year deals that the likes of Carlos Sainz and Valtteri Bottas have scrapped to achieve during their Formula 1 careers. Stroll's someone who should be on a one-year ticket. Let's see how it goes. And really, if you're being ruthless, he should be downgraded from where he is. He should have been dropped or should be at risk of being dropped after this season to a lower team. And that's where we have a, a bad imbalance in the current driver market. It's It's not, as we said at the start of the show, he's not performing at the level of the Aston Martin team, he's below it, and he might, he might unlock something. I'm, I'm unconvinced. I genuinely thought when he bounced back from his injuries at the start of the season, pushed really hard to get fit enough to race despite missing testing. I thought to myself, this is a side of Lance Stroll we haven't seen. This is the the hidden depths of determination and work ethic that he's going to need to harness now, and he's doing it because. He knows that Aston Martin are taking that step. He's finally going to have a really properly competitive car or you know, near enough uh, a race-winning car. But it just there hasn't been a progression from there. You know, he's he's done all right considering his injuries at the start of the season. And as he's got fitter and the car's got better, he's regressed back to kind of average Maldonado without the tails level. As Val can we make that a thing, please? Can that's, can... But, but that's. That's where that's where I fear there's just a fundamental limitation. That's not to say that Lance Stroll is a bad driver who doesn't deserve to be in Formula One who can't have a very successful career in motorsport. Absolutely he can, but he just doesn't show any obvious sign to me that he belongs at the front of the grid. Yeah, and you've got to be really, really good to win a Formula One World Championship. Not many drivers have ever achieved it. So to actually do that, you're asking an enormous amount. It's already pretty impressive. You know, even bad F1 drivers are mm. really, really good, quite frankly. Yeah, and, They're operating and, at a sky-high level. And Stroll, in the sort of the world of racing drivers, is operating at a really high level. But yeah, in this company, in this scenario, it's a different question. Yeah, and, and but his dad is convinced he can be world champion. You know, he's gone on record as saying that more than once. So there is, there's a disconnect, I think, between that 
that view and you can understand where it comes from obviously uh but it doesn't match with reality based on everything we've seen and you know i i've got no grudge against lance stroll it'd be great if he could unlock these hidden depths of performance that allow him to become the driver his dad thinks he can be but i just i just think the overwhelming weight of evidence points in the other direction yeah and i think this is going to be a topic that's it's talked about in Form Run for a long time. I'm sure we'll come back to it in the future because I don't think anything's going to change soon. But you never know. Maybe Stroll with full fitness really gets on a good run and starts to make those little steps. Who knows? We'll see how things go with, with that team. But it's going to be constantly the question is asked, isn't it? That's what's going to happen in the coming years as that team continues to build towards being a, a championship challenger. So thanks very much, Ben and Val, for your insight. Head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen loads to read there, not just on F1, but the rest of the world of motorsport. Check out our other podcasts, including MotoGP, often with added Val, the IndyCar podcast. Bring back V10s, an eighth series of that is shortly going to start. And also have a look at our YouTube channel, Well, we've got the Austrian Grand Prix coming up this weekend, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.